Back for week three. We're so glad you're here to dig in. And before we do, we want to pray. So let us pray. God, we are privileged and we thank you for the chance that we have, the opportunity for us to stop and to pause and to study who you are. Very clear that we were made to know you and knowing you is our highest priority, should be. It's certainly the most important thing that we can do. And God, as holy and perfect as you are, it's difficult for us. As the old hymn writer said, though the eye of sinful man your glory may not see, we want to do our very best, as diffused as it might be, to capture a sharper, clearer, more focused thought and understanding of who you are. There's no way to do that but to open your eternal word, to study its propositions, to ponder these things in context, to weigh them passage against passage, and to come to an idea and a, and a focused image of who you are. And God, in that, I know it should resonate at some point in the depths of who we are as human beings, that this is indeed what we're created for. So God, tonight, may you do that, touch that place in our lives that gives us uh, a sense of satisfaction to the appetite that we have to know our creator. And as we think about the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, we know there's a, a, a mystery about him even within the pages of scripture. But God, we seek to deepen our understanding. We want to dispel wrong thoughts and myths, and we want to come into a, uh, just a better and more appropriate, accurate view of, of who the Spirit is. So God, give us that tonight as we begin to look at the person and work of the Spirit in a more, uh, a more focused and topical way. And God, I pray that we would be ready and prepared if there's sin in our lives that makes it even more difficult for us to be in fellowship with you, to understand who you are. Even now, God, bring us to a place of real confession as quickly as that can happen and agreeing with you about sin and asking for your grace and your mercy. And then, God, just allow us to hear clearly from you through these notes and through these outlines and through the thoughts that I will uh, lead this congregation through. Give us just real truth that uh, filters out the error and the confusion. Thank you for this team of people, these disciples that care about you and who you are. And I pray, God, for a great night, a satisfying night in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin tonight by talking about the Holy Spirit as creator. That should be the first thing there on your worksheet. I don't know what you think of when you think of creation. I mean, most people bring images to their mind like this up on the screen, you know, this global picture of God with broad strokes, you know, kind of creating like a painter or maybe the cosmos as we see it now through these big telescopes and we get a sense of God somehow just tossing out these these, uh, these planets and these galaxies, or maybe more specifically you think in terms of a garden and God, those first images we had as kids learning about the creation of the human race and having the idea of an idyllic garden that he creates. But perhaps what we need to do in thinking about creation, particularly as we think about the instrumental role of the Holy Spirit, you should have an image like this in your mind. It is much more appropriate than a, a painter with a smock and a canvas Grade school kids were asked if God, the triune God, understands math and science and calculus and algebra and geometry and physics. And, of course, most of them said, no, there's no way God could understand all that. I mean, just our teachers and our parents, they get that. But, but God, that's beyond God. But, of course, the God who creates doesn't create a painting. Uh, the God who creates is a God of intelligence, of design, of tremendous detail. 
He needs to understand what it is to sequence and program the very material in which we find ourselves in, the, you know, the double helixes and the DNA and the protein molecules that float around not only in your body but all over this planet. I mean, if we don't understand something about a God who sees to the cellular level and creates these amazing little machines uh, of which all life is created, then we don't have a God that create what we see, the canvas even of our bodies or the things like these on the end of our fingers. I mean, all of this is impossible without a God of tremendous detail and and design who can create on the top of your head something that uh, all of us uh, recognize as being a, a... creative act of someone who has a sense not only of design but of beauty and certainly can't even look at the screen without the most complex organ as these uh, design guys the intelligent design movement tries to say with the irreducible complexity of things like an eyeball this is uh, a god who clearly is not just painting and throwing out beautiful pictures of sunsets or you know impressive dots of light on on the horizon the holy spirit is uh, a kind of creator who can look to the details of everything that is and know exactly what needs to be. And in creating this before the fall, there was something, of course, so uh, intricate and, and, and uh, genius about it all that should allow us to stand in awe. It's unfortunate we're more in awe of, of human creators who create gadgets than we are of the God who created all things. Now, of course, if we think about creation, it is a triune activity. It is not just the activity of the Holy Spirit. Uh, And that's important for us to note, and we don't need to deal with that with much detail. But, of course, the Father is credited with creation. I mean, you read Genesis 1.1, you know, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. usually refers to the Father. If you want some more specificity, you could jot down Deuteronomy 32.6, which reads this way. Do you thus repay the Lord, in this case, with sinful behavior? He calls them foolish and senseless people. Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Now, that's the way the Bible likes to talk about creation. In, in, in most references to the creation of everything and the creation of your life and the creation of the cosmos, it is referred to as a creation of God uh, the Father. But then we understand in the New Testament, there's plenty of passages that remind us that the Son was an instrumental agency of creation. And as John 1, 1 puts it, without him, there was nothing made at all. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Of course, this is John's reference to Jesus. And the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. I mean, that's not, this is not the only place we get. This is clearly throughout the New Testament, uh, a doctrine of Christology. All things were made through Christ, and without Christ, notice this, without the Word, was not anything made that was made. So obviously the Bible presents us with the picture of God the Father creating and the Son creating, and we're going to spend time looking at the Spirit's role in creation. Now, that causes people some problems. I mean, they think, well, I don't know, it seems like double talk here. It seems like, you know, one person clearly created this. It seems in grammar and logic, not, not you know, not multiple. It can't be credited with the creation of the same thing. That shouldn't cause problems for us because anything that's created here on planet Earth that we create 
which, by the way, is only a reflection of the creativity that God has. We're only allowed to create because God has endowed us with a divine attribute, if you will, an attribute that reflects his divinity, and that's the ability to create. And most things that we're impressed with were committee projects. You know that, right? Take, for instance, this thing that's uh, you know, in your purse or on your, your belt. Now, I understand it's not that, but it, it's impressive for most. And if you really want to do the history of this or any other great project, you know there are great minds working in collaboration to make that work. And some of you, you know, are so into Apple, you know all these guys here, Ives, Jobs, and Schiller, who were some of the key players in bringing technology like this to the marketplace. And all of that, you, know, you can't say, is, is the act of a single person. Now, I don't want to be oversimplistic, but if you think of the construction of a skyscraper in some downtown city, you might recognize that it is something commissioned by and overseen by some CEO and is designed by some chief architect and then is constructed by some you know, general manager on a construction site that gets the job done. I'm not making the creation of the world that simplistically divided or defined, but I do want you to recognize that when it comes to standing back and say, who created that? I suppose if your dad is the chief architect, you're going to say, my dad created that. You know, if your brother was, was the, the lead construction manager, you're going to say, my, my brother created that. You know, or if you happen to be the CEO, you're going to say, you created that. There's, there's clearly no problem uh, in even our experience as human beings, knowing that there are plenty of roles that may be akin to what happens in the Godhead with the construction of anything big, like the universe, which is obviously as big as it gets. So what I want to do here is just look through Scripture and think about the operation of the Holy Spirit and see if we can discern anything about his his role beyond just saying that it's just speculation, you know, maybe he was the architect or the builder or I don't know, what was he? Clearly God was the CEO in the project. Well, the first place we need to go to is Genesis 1. So take your Bibles and turn there. And, and, and again, I put question marks on that last slide, and I'll have some question marks throughout these four things that I can derive from Scripture because they, uh, they're a bit mysterious. Uh, we have a hard time understanding what exactly the role is, especially when you look in the Bible and see that throughout the Bible we have these statements regarding creation as something done with a word, something done simply, something done just by the, you know, and again, he has no vocal cords and no lips, no teeth, no, no ability to... To, uh, I mean, of course, he could create the ability to, but God is spirit, is not you know, saying anything. If you had ears there, you wouldn't hear any words. But with the, the focused, determined, purposeful, volitional decision, God creates. And it doesn't seem like it's a construction project at all. But there was something more to it than that. Even in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Which, by the way, the word God, Elohim, you do understand, every time you have an I-M on the end of a transliterated Hebrew word, it's like finding an S on the end of an English word. A lot of our uh, words that we do bring into uh, English, like cherubim and seraphim, if it has an I-M, that's the Hebrew ending for a plural. Even the word for God here, that it's always translated as a singular, is an, a word that has the breadth of a, of a plural. Theologians like to talk about it in terms 
terms of a majestic plural. There's a, 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 a birth of, of something so great in the idea of the word uh, that, that it's not contained in a singular. And that's not the focus of my discussion now, but I do want to point out that even in the first verse, there's a sense of breadth to the word God. There's lots of words for God, but the one we have here uh, is, is the word Elohim. Verse 2, and the earth was without form and void. Okay, So it was shapeless and, and, and empty. And darkness was over the face of the deep. Now here we go. We get now a reference to the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God was, now here's the word to circle, hovering over the face of the waters. And then God said, now here's the pattern in Genesis 1 and throughout the Bible, he seems to speak things and they happen. But look at the instrumentality of the Spirit in this verse, in the bottom of verse 2, that says the Spirit... You know, whatever that looked like was hovering. Now, that's a word, and, and, and if you do lexical studies in the Old Testament, you'll find, uh, unlike the New Testament, most of these words are used many, many, many times in the Old Testament. Well, here's one only used three times in the Old Testament, the word that's translated hover. And what I want to talk about and suggest is that perhaps, and I put a, in brackets a question mark, because, you know, I, I don't want to build a doctrine on a, on, a, on a single verse that doesn't have clarity for me, at least concrete thoughts in my mind as to what this means, but the idea of hovering over the face of the earth, then things being created on that planet, give me the idea of fashioning from Genesis 1-2. The word rakaf, rakaf in Hebrew, translated hovering, only three times in the Old Testament. And let me give you the other two. And I'll show you how the ESV translates it, which will give you a sense of the breadth of this because they're contextually defined for us, which is very helpful uh, in context that, that we want to understand. Take this cross-reference, for instance, Deuteronomy 33.11. It'll be up on the screen. Deuteronomy 33.11. Like an eagle stirs up its nest that flutters, there's our word, rakaf, flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them bearing them up on its pinions. That idea of a, a bird in a nest, an, an eagle in this case, with the arms moving around, fluttering quickly, there's our Hebrew word, that Hebrew word, rakaf. That idea does not, if you take that picture of a bird fluttering its wings, now I picture the Spirit of God on this void, empty, you know, unoccupied sphere that's been tossed out there, and he's about to fashion. You get that idea from that, I, that, that word? Here's the other, only other usage. Jeremiah 23, 9. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 9. Concerning the prophets, Jeremiah says, which aren't doing so well at this particular point in Israel's history. My heart is broken within me, Jeremiah says. All my bones shake. They quiver. I'm like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine because of the Lord and because of his holy words. Shaking. You picture the idea of birds' wings fluttering and a man shaking. Now you put that picture on the earth and you see God starting to create with a word and you have the spirit, at least the image that God's giving us, is the spirit moving around on top of it, having that sense of fashioning and molding and shaping. That's the picture. I know these things happen quickly and with a word, but there's the idea that God is trying to give us with the idea of rakaf to hover, to flutter, to shake, to move. He was active while God speaks. He does. 
And if I'm going to now think through the picture, which I, I admit overly simplified, of God CEO and some design, and, and let's not get into Christology for, for this particular point, but if you think now of the Spirit, he seems to be the construction worker, the, the, the one who puts the hands on and gets it done. His operation, let's talk about agency, which is easy to talk about because that's the way we're left to understand Christ's involvement. We don't know how, but we see words in Greek like by. Uh, things were created by him and for him, Colossians says. Uh, we, we get the idea that, that nothing was made without him. Things were made by him, They're the agency. We see that in the Old Testament, too, if you look at passages like Psalm 33, 6. I put this one also up on the screen. Don't need to turn there, but take a look at it. Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Now, that's, now, this is Hebrew parallelism. We understand that. But we get a sense of God speaking and things happening. And by the, and what do we say about the word breath? What is the word? Spirit. By the spirit of his mouth, by the breath of his mouth, mouth all their hosts. The picture there is God you know, has a, a word, and, and yet the idea, the double entendre, if you will, of the breath of that word and the spirit himself being the agency of that creation. And I say ongoing because of passages like Psalm 104, verse 30. Psalm 104, verse 30. And the statement's very simple, but when you send forth your spirit, now this is clear, no, no double entendre here. When your spirit goes forth, they are created. And in this passage, in, in context, he's talking about the creatures of the planet. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. Now, again, we can go into, you know, understanding these things as we observe them and we watch the process of cellular reproduction and all the rest. But the idea here is an ongoing agency of God sustaining all things. And you say, oh, that sounds like Christology, the idea of agency. Not only are all things created by Christ and for Christ, he upholds all things by the word of his power. There's the sense, as, 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 as uh, Paul said about God, that, that in, all, in him all things consist, all things hold together, or as he says to the Athenians, in him we live and move and have our being. There's something about the agency of creation and sustaining the creation stated here in this simple Hebrew parallelism. Spirit creates, spirit renews, spirit sustains agency. A lot like Christology there. Now again, Question mark on construction, but look at how this is put in terms of, of the Spirit's involvement. And at least we can see an association here. This is not a strong definition or description from God, but there's something here for us to gather. Isaiah 40, 12 through 14. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands? Now, I understand this is very poetic and, and, and very illustrative. It's not, you know, not meant to be literal. There's no palm in his hand, and there's no you know, measuring stick or measuring line. But the idea is the thought of how long should this be? How much should there be? And he marked off the heavens with a span. God is big. He figured it out. He planned it. He measured it. He put it out there, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and in the hills in, in the hills in a balance. Now, again, you say, well, I thought he spoke a word. But in that, in this in infinitely intelligent God, there's some kind of involvement in how much should there be, how long should this be, how big should this be, all of that picture of creation. And then the parallelism bringing the spirit as the main player in this, in this verse. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? In other words, speaking of the creator, who's measured him? So again, as we've seen in other places in the Old Testament, the spirit is credited with creation, not just the father. And it says, or what man shows him his counsel. He's the one who measured it off and decided how it should go. 
Whom did the Spirit consult? Whom did he consult? And who, who made him understand? The idea here of the architect even, of one who sits there and figures this out and then goes and gets it done, marks it off, encloses it, measures it, does it. In this sense, we get the idea of, of, of construction and even design and construction. Again, speculative, but some, something to help us. Now, this one I, I think is most obvious, both etymologically in the word spirit, because God now says we have a spirit, but there's something very obvious throughout the scripture as we talk about him being the life giver. He's giving life. How does he create? Gives life. Job 33, 4 puts it very simply. The spirit of God has made me and the breath of the almighty give me life. The breath, that, that idea of my life is, is, is like Paul's picture, sustained by the activity of God. And in this passage, specifically, the third person of the Godhead, the Spirit of God makes us, the Spirit of God gives us life, the life-giving Spirit. Even the mystics talk in those terms who don't believe in the Bible or the God of the Bible. But that's the idea. The breath and mystery of the software of who I am is given by, sustained by, and, and, and fueled by the Spirit of God himself. Those four things are about as far as I can go in talking about what role did the Spirit play. I think it's even harder in Christology, uh, and, and though we get a, a small glimpse in pneumatology, it's, it's all we have to go on. I mean, I could go to other passages, but in my mind, these are the four headings that I think can logically be uh, teased out from each other to say, okay, here's what he is. Here's how he functioned. Here was his operation in creation. Let's spend most of our time tonight talking about the Holy Spirit as author. The Holy Spirit as author. He creates us. There's much to that. I suppose a lot of implications we could have explored. But for the sake of time, let's talk about uh, him as author. We'll get back perhaps if we have any leftover time uh, with some impromptu application on him being creator. Now, if we think about him being author, of course we're talking about the Bible. And if you have one, uh, you can say, okay, this is the product of the Holy Spirit or that's how you've been trained or taught to, to, to think about the Bible. Certainly what the Bible says about itself. Picture, if you will, the Godhead, the invisible God, giving us this book. Now, there's a lot to that, but that's the picture that is created in the Scripture, just to give you a visual that we'll get back to many times from here on in. But, of course, if you say, well, my Bible wasn't given to me on a printing press, you know, through Crossway Publishers. Uh, it was translated from these manuscripts that were, that were written by these authors, right? I've got these 40 authors or so, and I've got all these old manuscripts that they wrote on. So, you know, what's going on here? I've got to be much more specific than talking about the Spirit giving me the Bible. I've really got to deal with both of these links in the chain. If John 3.16 is God's mind on paper, along with, you know, Romans 11.1, and pick another passage, if that's God's mind on paper, then what we've got to do is figure out how the Spirit is involved in both of these links. And the more we explore that, the better we are in being able to grasp the importance uh, and the connection, and really, I think, the awe that we should have that the book that you hold is the product of the third person of the Godhead. Now, the first one, let's label it. This is letter A. Let's talk about Revelation this is the word that I think is important for us to grasp because it's the biblical word, at least how it's translated, letter A, Revelation. And just up front, uh, let's do deductively here a little, bit out, a little bit of outlining and talk about a definition, and then we'll build on that uh, as, we, as we go and un unpack it. A definition. And of course, this is Revelation regarding the Bible. We'll get a little bit more in a second here that's beyond the Bible. But let's talk about this. Here's a good synonym that will be the, the, the nut of our definition. 
Revelation is the Holy Spirit's disclosing of God's thoughts. It's the Holy Spirit's disclosing of God's thoughts to the biblical authors. If it's disclosing, then it's, you don't know, you don't know what it, what's there. It's concealed. I have something in my left pocket. You don't know what it is. You can guess, you can speculate, but you don't know. Just like your friends at work want to think about God. What kind of God is he? What would he punish people for? What would he allow in in their lives? They can only guess unless God has disclosed what are his standards and what is appropriate and, you know, what he's like. He has to disclose that. And the first link in this chain, Revelation, if we're going to define it, is the act of the Holy Spirit being the delivery system to disclose the information that would otherwise not be known. It, was, it would be concealed. What do we have to do to be right with God? What is sin, right? How, how does Christ factor into all this? All those things have to be disclosed. That's our, our simple definition of, of revelation. Now, just for the sake of, of understanding the idea of revelation, let's just at least understand there are some broader activities of the Spirit as it relates to this. And let's just briefly talk about these. General revelation would be a good place for us to go next. General revelation. General revelation, we talk about in two broad categories, and there are others we could, we could, I suppose, subdivide this. But when we talk about the Spirit's disclosing or the disclosing of information that's otherwise unknown, we understand in the involvement of the Spirit, even as I began this with some visuals to get you thinking less of a painter and more of a physicist, you know, someone who understands the intricacies of the protein molecules, that's the creator of heaven and earth. And in that creation, whether you go down into the cells or whether you go out into, the, into, the, into space, into the stars and the galaxies, you learn something about God. Let's look at Psalm 19, a very classic, memorable text, but I want you to look at it afresh and understand what's happening through the work and crafting of the Holy Spirit. We learn something about the, the Apple engineers by looking at the hardware and, and messing around with the software. We understand something about what they're thinking and how they, what they value and what they don't value. And those are the things that we begin to see just in looking at the, you know, the, the iPod of the cosmos, if you will. I'm stretching this illustration far too far, way too far. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. Now look at how this is put. I understand it's, it's, it's poetically inscribed in the lyrics of this song. But understand what's being said here. The heavens declare the glory of God. Now, again, the word glory gets thrown around church like hallelujah, and no one ever thinks about what it means. Glory, kabod, weightiness, the importance of God, the, the, the depth of God, the breadth of God. That's kabod. That's, that's glory. The heavens, that, again, you remember there's... There's three different, Shemayim is the Hebrew word, and Shemayim is understood in three different ways. Uh, the heavens are, are the place where the birds fly. They call that the birds, or the heavens, right? The, bird, the birds fly around in the heavens. Then they talk about where the stars and planets hang out. They call that the heavens. And then, of course, they call uh, the ultimate heaven God's, God's living room. So when you look up, we can't see God's living room. But what we can see in the daytime, uh, because of the physics of it all, we see the place where the birds fly, and in our case, where the planes fly. And we see at night space, we get to see what's going on out there beyond our 
little dome of, of protection on, on our inner atmosphere, and we begin to see some things about God. And the more we sit there and ponder those things, which we don't do much unless we're watching a show on it, I suppose, but if you're out camping or whatever for a week, you start to recognize a few things about God just by laying around without a book in your hand or a, or a radio or an iPod or a, or, or a TV screen. And the idea is that God says, I'm, I'm saying things through what I've made. Now, again, the Bible says that the constructor, if you will, and maybe even the designer is the spirit of God who goes in there and makes all these things. He is speaking the spirit through what he has made. It's not active. I suppose it's active only in that we receive it at a particular time. If you were out camping on July 22nd, you heard from the spirit. Well, how did you hear from the spirit? Just by examining what he made. Just like if you look at, a, at an iPod, it wasn't made the day you learn from it necessarily, but it, it, it has its residual effect. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech. I can learn a lot if I'm listening, I'm looking. And night by night reveals, reveals knowledge. In the daytime, see it. Nighttime, see it. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, the sky, and its circuit to the end of them, the other end of the sky. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Here's just understanding something about the warmth of our big ball of fusion that warms the planet, the stars, the creation, it's speaking. So the Holy Spirit reveals something about God, which is part of his passion in creation to speak to humankind. To be able to speak to humankind is the passion of the Spirit, and one way he does that is through the world that he made. Now, there's a lot we could look at on that, but that's for another lecture, I suppose. The other thing that we should look at is human conscience from Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. The Spirit of God not only wants to teach you something through the hardware, he wants to teach you something through the software. The hardware, not only your body, but the world that we live in is speaking, and it's the Spirit's handiwork, and it is something that he wants to, to communicate to you through. And then there's the software inside of you, the way that you feel guilty when you do wrong things, the way that you feel joyful about doing something righteous or good. Those are the things addressed in Romans 2, 14 and 15. Speaking, by the way, of people that don't have the written word, it says in verse 14, Romans 2, 14, when the Gentiles who don't have the law, they don't have the detailed law code for ethics on sexual behavior or stealing or morality at work or lying or whatever it might be, when they by nature, in other words, they do this naturally because of something in, in what has been made inside of them, when they do what the law requires, well, then they become a law to themselves. Why? Because they know what they should do intuitively. Their conscience knows and tells them, even though they don't have the written law. They don't have the law. They show that the work of the law, what God is trying to communicate, or more specifically, what the Spirit is trying to communicate through the written word, the Spirit is now communicating within the software that he's put within human beings. They show that the work of that communication is written on their hearts, so to speak. Another poetic, illustrative statement, but you get the idea. It's in their internal software. While their conscience also bears witness, now that's the word we use for it, and their, their conflicting thoughts accuse and even excuse them, depending on their behavior. So when we think about the Spirit creating, one of the things he wants to do through the creation is communicate. Now, he's not only a creator who wants to communicate through what he creates, but he wants to communicate more specifically. But before we get to that, I suppose we should think of times when he gets very specific outside of the, of the Scriptures. 
Let's talk letter B on the back of your worksheet about special revelation. Special revelation. Special revelation. Specific revelation. Obviously, natural or broad or general revelation. Those are the things that are available to everybody on the planet. Special revelation is not available to everybody. That's special. It's unique. Now, we don't have time to get into all this in our bibliology series we did in more detail, but there are ways that God has communicated, at least as it's recorded in the Bible, about outside of what we see recorded. He has spoken through dreams and visions. He's spoken through audible voices, and I don't know which is which, but you read these things sometimes without stopping. I just jotted down 1 Samuel 23, 1 and 2. Someone comes to David and tells him that the Philistines are attacking Keilah, and they're robbing the threshing floors. So David goes and inquires of the Lord, and he asks, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, yes, go and attack the Philistines and save uh, Keilah. Now, how did God say that to him? Right? I don't know, but the Spirit of God, uh, we can safely assume because of the passages that I don't want to take time to look up, is associated with these things. Uh, a dream, a vision, an audible voice, lots even. Let's get real specific. When they cast lots, dice, uh, like, you know, the sticks, uh, we assume they're like rocks and dice, uh, or, or even if you want to be more specific, the Urim and the Thummim in, in the priest's garb were ways to discern the will of God through the providence of how those things fell down, how they came out. You know, it's, it seems odd for us to think that way, but certainly before the canon was fully developed, and it seems like early in the canon, we had, and by that I mean the collection of books of the Bible, we had these um, ways in which God spoke to people. Dreams, visions, audible voices, lots, casting of lots or dice, if you will, Urim and Thummim, etc. And if we were to look at all of these, which I didn't take time to do for the sake of time, you could find the Spirit's association described with them. But what we're dealing with here in our discussion is the spirit as author. And so we want to talk about that in terms of how he can write for God. Now, that may sound a bit ridiculous because we've talked about this triune God who's a mystery. He's one God, three persons. Well, it seems, of course, he has the credentials to speak for God because he is God. But he's not independent in, in the regards to his actions or at least how he's speaking. He is a person who has a, 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 a uh, reliance upon the other persons of the Godhead. And in that regard, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, to just think through this and how it's portrayed in the Bible that the book that you have begins with the act of God revealing his truth in the person of the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Godhead is the revealing agent of God's thoughts to the biblical authors. Revelation. Holy Spirit's credentials, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's start in verse 6. This is a key passage, and I don't want you to miss it. And by the way, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is often misquoted and abused and misapplied because we don't remember the context. He is speaking of the role that he has as an apostle, which happens a lot in, in 1 and 2 Corinthians, to try and show that he is an apostle, that he is speaking with the authority of Christ. Look what he says in verse 6. Among the mature, we do impart wisdom. And you can see the contrast in verses 1 through 5. But now he's talking positively about the fact that he is imparting wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. We're not just parroting what the people of the day think. But we impart, now notice this, if you want to help us with our idea just to confirm and affirm the definition of revelation, look at this phrase. We impart a secret or hidden wisdom of God. He's claiming now revelation when I'm speaking to the people of Corinth as an apostle, he says it's something that wouldn't otherwise be known. It was concealed. What's in Mike's left pocket? Don't know. Has to be revealed. 
which God decreed before the ages for our glory. What did he decree? That there would be those like the apostles and the prophets of the Old Testament who would disclose the hidden things that God had not yet disclosed. We impart that wisdom. It's secret. It's hidden. It wasn't known. We're not parroting what the world thinks. We're not just kind of putting together the best thoughts of men. And he says, by the way, verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood it. When we gave it and put it out there for the masses, if they had, by the way, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. If they would have understand the prophets of the Old Testament, it wouldn't have happened. And he's counting himself with the prophets, even with the statement he's making there in verse 8. But as it is written, now he quotes Isaiah, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Which, by the way, is often quoted as a passage. Isn't it great the things that God is going to do for us in the next life and we can't even imagine them? Now, it's true you can't imagine them, but read the rest of this. This quote is not designed to say, isn't there a lot of stuff you don't know? This is a passage that says, look at the apostles are giving you what you don't know because it's been revealed to them. Next verse. These things, what things? The hidden things, the things that eye has not seen and ear has not heard. And even haven't come into the, the mind of man. The heart of man hasn't imagined. These things God has, here's our word, revealed to us. Now, who's us? Don't, don't think this is the guy in the pew in Corinth. This is him, the apostle and the apostolic band. They're going to give them freely to the, to the Corinthians, but they've been revealed. It didn't reveal it to us. He's revealed it to us, I suppose, second person, but he's revealing it to them. Keep reading. These things God has revealed to us through the spirit. There's the agency. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now, you want to talk about modalism for a second, where people believe, and and, and some of these errors will come up from time to time as we study the Spirit, but the idea of modalism, that God is one person that puts on three different hats. Even this description here of the Spirit of God kind of uh, describes so independent of the Father that he's like, oh, I have to go figure out what the Father thinks. Think about that. The distinction of the persons of the Godhead here, he searches, that's an active verb, everything, even the depths of God. So the third person of the Godhead gets in there and knows what what the Father, the first person of the Godhead, thinks. For who knows, by the way, just to use a parallel in terms of our language, because we talk about a person being a person and then having a spirit. Actually, we'll look at how he puts it, verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts, that's the totality of who you are, except the spirit of the person which is in him. Okay, I get that. You don't know what's in my pocket. It's in my mind. I don't have to touch it. I already know what's in there. My spirit knows that. You can only guess at it. You don't know what I'm thinking right now. So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God, that is, the God the Father, except the Spirit of God. Now, that illustration breaks down at some point. But the idea of the distinction of the persons of the Godhead, the Spirit now, so in tune with knowing the depths of the Father's thoughts that he can reveal it to Paul and the apostles to pass on to us. But that knowledge is is gained because he's so intimately acquainted with the person of the Father that he, like your spirit, knows you, your person, and your thoughts. That's the relationship. That's his credentials. That's how he has qualification to write this book. Now, we, that is the apostles, verse 12, have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, capital S, The spirit who knows all those things about God that he hasn't formally revealed, now he's given that spirit to the apostles in the act of their, well, we're going to get to that, to their writing, but the the act of revelation here, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. God wants some thoughts, even basic thoughts about the end of the world, to come to you. But let's go back. 
It's got to first come to the apostle who's going to put it in writing. And that act of revelation comes to him and God decides to give it to the, to the writer of that passage. And the spirit is the agency that grants it. He's decided, freely gives it, and Paul's going to freely pass it on, by the way. That we may understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this, what? That God is revealed. Not in words taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And that's a reference back to the rulers of the world that don't want to listen to it. They think it's foolishness. But when the Spirit of God gives information about the person of the Father to these apostles who are going to pass it on, that's the act of revelation. And the way it's put is the independence of the persons of the Godhead. He is so in tune, though, searching the depths of the Father that he has the ability now to pass those things in the act of disclosure revelation to the apostles. All right. What was that? Number three, credentials. Let's talk more about the disclosure. Don't close 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I want to talk about the actual disclosure. Now, all we can do is build some words here from the scripture about how that works. What's that look like? So keep reading. Two more verses here, and then I'll give you another passage that will give us some more verbs. Verse 12. We just read that, did we not? Yeah. Let's go back and read it again with the two words that will help us. Now, we, the apostles, have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of God that we might, here's the first word to underline, understand. Now, something about the act of revelation that gives the author here, the apostle, or in the Old Testament, the prophet, an understanding. I mean, that's the word. Understand the things that God has freely given us. So the decree has gone out for this author, this prophet, this apostle to understand, and, and that's the impartation of this. And we impart this to other people. Not taught by human wisdom, but here's the other verb I want you to underline, taught by the Spirit. This is a teaching, a revelation that is described with the verb to understand and the verb taught, to teach. Now, we are interpreting spiritual truths, passing this on now, taking it from the Spirit to you, to those who can take it in. One more passage. It'll give us even more verbs. There are two verbs there, understand and taught. That's the act of disclosure. Chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, there are three verbs here that are used that are helpful. John chapter 16, verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes, now again, a lot of people claim that this is a passage for them. You know the old line, every promise in the book is mine? That's a lie. Not every promise in the book is yours. Here's a promise for the apostles about their role in writing the New Testament and teaching as well, declaring it verbally and putting it into to writing. Verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes... That's the third person of the Spirit. He will guide you. There's the first verb. Into all truth. Whatever thoughts that need to be given to the first century church and inscribed in the Bible for the now 20 centuries of the church, you've got this being described with the word guided. The Spirit's going to guide you to understand that. I suppose there's our word from 1 Corinthians 2.12. Then he says, and he's not going to the Spirit, the third person, speak on his own authority. For whatever he hears, he will, here's the second verb, speak. Now, is that audible? In a couple of cases, it was in the book of Acts. There are red letters in the book of Acts, for instance, where we see the, the Spirit of God actually audibly speaking to the apostles, which they pass on in a couple of cases. Whatever he hears, he will speak. But I'm assuming that's more broadly understood as, as articulating in their minds in some way. And he will declare, there's our third verb, the things that are to come. So the Spirit's going to guide the apostle's brain. He's going to speak to the apostle's brain, and he's going to declare to the apostle's brain the things that they don't know. He's going to disclose. He, the Spirit, will glorify me, that is Christ, for he, the Spirit, will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
So I'm going to give you more information, which he said in the Upper Room Discourse. Much of, much of it you can't even handle right now. But wait, when the Spirit comes and invades your life, your role as an apostle, you'll be gifted in that role that not everybody else is gifted in. And Ephesians 2.20 says, only a few in that first generation of the church were gifted with this to be able to understand, to be taught by the Spirit, to be guided by the Spirit, to be spoken to by the Spirit, and to be declared to by the Spirit to put these kinds of things into writing. That's the step of revelation. Now, some of those words can be used with small u, small t, small g, small s, small d. But when I'm talking about the act of revelation, clear, unalterable, absolutely accurate disclosure from God, not an impulse, not a thought, not a guess, but God has made it very clear here that this is what's coming, a rapture of the church, a, a, a fulfillment of the promise to Israel, whatever it might be, thinking of several passages, those are the things the Bible claims and promises were going to be given to a set of people who would put that on paper, the Spirit's disclosure. All right, so God's Spirit is going to write a book. He's first got to get the thoughts that he wants in that book into the mind of the writer of that book, whether it's Moses or whether it's John, the first author or the last author. It has to have that step of revelation. Then we need the second step of what we call, at least in our theology, we call it inspiration. If we're going to have the Spirit speak in a book and put and record words in a book, the because there's an author in the middle of all this, a human author, he's got to govern the revelation, and he has to govern this thing we call inspiration to get that on paper. Those two steps, critically important. Let's talk about it. Letter B, inspiration. Let's talk about the reality of it. These passages are fascinating if you give them thought. Sometimes you run to the Bible and you think so often, oh, what does Peter think? And I know his background. And Paul likes to talk about these things. And Luke, Dr. Luke, he's always saying things like right hand was withered because he's a doctor and that's how he thinks. We, we often think humanly about the text, which I understand that. And we'll look at that in a minute, but we need to look at the reality. And the reality in the scripture is, in passages like Acts one sixteen, that these are actually things that are so sent by, motivated by, the impetus is so clearly the spirit and his governance of revelation and inspiration is so involved that you could say things like this. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. He's quoting the Old Testament now, Peter is, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Notice here the subject of, of the verb. Who spoke? David? Look at how it's put. The Spirit spoke, and he did this before it happened, but he used the mouth of David concerning Judas. Now, again, this is a bit of, of a poetic way to say it because he didn't just say it. It was written. It was recorded. He, he wrote it down about Judas, who's the topic, in part, by the way, of our sermon this weekend. Don't miss it. Who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now, catch the reality of this. Basically, he's saying, who said, who talked about Judas before he came? The Holy Spirit did by the agency of David. I mean, basically, you could say, okay, God's Spirit going to write a book. The Holy Spirit has to govern revelation and inspiration. You can say, as it just was put in Acts 1, the Holy Spirit said it. You read something in the Bible, you can accurately say, as the Bible says, these are the words of the Spirit of God. The reality. Let's a couple more. Acts 28, 25 and 26. Acts 28, 25 and 26. They departed... After Paul had made one statement, now he wasn't happy, this, he's leaving, things weren't good here. 
the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through the, through the prophet, through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. Actually, we just read that, did we not? Uh, in, in Isaiah 6 in our daily Bible reading. They departed after Paul had made a statement. What was the one statement he made? The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers, because you're just like your father, chip off the old block, in that you're hearing and you never understand. But do you see the way it's put? Who said that to the fathers of these people? Who said that to the forefathers of these Jews? Well, the Holy Spirit said it. But look at how it's put this time, through Isaiah the prophet. I mean, we're reading Peter's statements. We're reading Luke's statements. We're reading Paul's statements. But the way that this is put, when you read Isaiah's statement, you're reading the Holy Spirit's statement. He has said these things to that generation and successive generation. But he did it through a person, through the the, the prophet Isaiah. One more. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. There's many of them, by the way, in Hebrews. We just read this. Actually, there's some more in chapter 4, which we've read recently. That very convoluted sermon you heard last weekend. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... Now, this is David's psalm that that we referenced this weekend. Now, think about this. He's not even using David anymore. In this statement, the writer of Hebrews says, As the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you'd hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He's not only bypassing David as the author of that psalm, he's now not even looking to that first generation as the reference. He's now applying it to them, and he's saying, guess what? The Holy Spirit is saying these very words to you guys, which is the point he makes in chapter 4. So when you open up a Bible, I mean, you can think as a scholar, if you will, about the human authorship. But in the Bible, it's very clear that the Spirit of God wants to communicate, and he wrote a book. And when he wrote a book, it is accurate and truthful to say, he said it by the mouth of David. He said it through Isaiah the prophet. He just said it, not just to the fathers who read it in the the first generation where they read it. He's saying it to you. Now, again, not every promise in the book is yours. That's why we study hermeneutics, that we've got to be very careful as to what is contextually not applicable to us and what is. But here... Just like he recognizes, the writer of Hebrews, we can recognize in many texts, you know what, this is fully applicable to Christians in the New Covenant age, and and you know what, it's the Spirit of God speaking directly to you in this sentence. That's a mind-blowing thought. Oh, I did give you one more, Hebrews 10, 15 and 16. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. I mean, if we couldn't make it any clear, now, you know, it's his generation, which again, he's quoting uh, Jeremiah 31, which was years before that generation, the first century generation. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. He's trying to tell us God's thought. For after saying, who said it? Well, Jeremiah said it. Yeah, well, God said it. Well, it was the Spirit who said it. He's the author. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws in their hearts. I'll write them on their minds. Just the way that he sets that up. The Holy Spirit bears witness to us. So many people looking for the Spirit to speak to them. Wow, you're carrying it around right there in that leather-covered book. We need to start there. We read that today, did we not? Just a quick sidebar. I was thinking of the Isaiah passages. What did we read today? 7, 8, and 9, is that right? In chapter 8, when he talks about you guys, you want to hear from God. Who do you seek out? You know, you seek out these mediums and these spiritists, and they mutter, and they, you know, do all this crazy stuff. Back to the law and the testimony. Back to the law and the testimony. You want to hear from God? You want to hear about the other side? You want to hear the things that you wouldn't know otherwise? You want to hear God's mind? Back to the law and to the testimony. Get back in the book. You want to hear the Spirit speak. Stop going to the mediums and the spiritists. That's what he was telling his generation, which the Spirit says the same thing to you. Hopefully you're not going to the the mediums and the spiritists. All right, let's talk about the description. How is this described? Okay, that's one thing to say that he does it. The Spirit is speaking. It's the Spirit's book. The Spirit is the author. 
How is this described? Well, here's the classic text we should all turn to once again, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And I want you to turn to the context, even if you have the verse memorized, because I want you to see how this is set up. There's, an, there's a phrase in verse 14 that we often miss, but to get the full context, we should start in verse 12, which is obviously not the full, full context, but it gives us why we get to this statement about how the scripture was given to us. Verse 12, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, for sure, absolutely, he says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And by the way, it's a good sign uh, that you're not a Christian if you're not being persecuted in any way ever in your Christian life. I, I remember having a gal say that to me. That, oh, you're always talking about persecution. I, I never persecution. I, I've never heard of that. Man, I'm worrying about you then. Very concerned about your Christianity. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil men and imposters, much like in Isaiah 8, people want to go find people that are going to speak for God, you can go to the mutterers all you want. And there's a lot of people out there claiming to speak for God. But they're deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Paul's writing to his understudy Timothy, who's in Ephesus as a young pastor, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing, underline this, from whom you learned it. Oh, I learned it from Lois. No, I learned it from Eunice. No, I learned it from Paul. Mm-mm, none of that. As this is going to say, you learned it directly from the Spirit of God. You learned it from God himself. Now, the imposters and the evil men are making up stuff in their mind. It's their best thoughts about God. It's all the consolidation of ideas out in the world. They're sitting on rocks trying to figure out God. But you have the truth. Continue in it. You've trusted in it. You know who you learned it from and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. These are special. These are holy. These are different, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This is no normal opinion on God. This is not some textbook by, by, by experts. This is God speaking because all scripture I mean, here's the classic text or word for, for the, the written scriptures of, of God is breathed out, underline that, by God, breathed out by God. Those four English words translate one Greek word, breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, there's a lot of people out there trying to speak for God, saying this is what God thinks. God doesn't care about that. God thinks this is important, but you got to get back to just like Isaiah 8 says, back to the law and to the testimony, to the scriptures. Now, the key word in this text is the translated phrase, breathed out by God, breathed out by God. If you're reading an ESV, which is what we use here, not because it's the only translation, but it's good to be reading out of the same one, and it's a good one, which, by the way, it's the fourth most read, best-selling English translation in the world. It's moved up to number four, by the way, which is fantastic. Uh, only beaten out by the King James, I think the new King James, the NIV, but it's up to the number four slot. That's good. Yeah, we went to it, uh, I forgot what year, but it certainly wasn't number four. I guess they heard you guys were using it because everybody's starting to use it now. Minor chuckle. God breathed, breathed out by God. Now, those are the four words translated in 2001, or at least that's when they published the ESV. Been updated a couple times, a couple of passages fixed, grammatical problems ironed out. But the 2001 translation, breathed out by God. If you compare that ESV translation to, I don't know, Tyndale's translation in 1526, you're going to read something that sounds very familiar. That all scripture was given by inspiration of God. All you have to do is go and compare this to most English translations. It's exactly what you're going to get. Inspired, given by inspiration. You're going to find that in 90% of the English translations in the world. 
Okay, Tyndale, 1526. That was our first English translation. Now, where did he get that? He got that from this phrase in the Vulgate, which goes back to 405 AD, when it was translated into Latin from Greek. Divinitus inspirata. Divinitus, you know that. Someone has a doctor of divinity, right? That's a divinity of God. I don't know, divinities, what is that? That's like a pastry or a candy, isn't it? Divinity? My wife likes that. It's so good, it's, it's godlike. I don't know where they get that from. There's probably a story to that. Look it up. You got your Wikipedia up. Figure it out. Divinity. How else do we use divinity? Doctor of divinity. Something is so divine, right? Divinity. He, it's the Latin word for, for God. Easy. Inspirata. Do you know what Tyndale did back in 1526? He did what often happens in translations. I don't want to say they get lazy because he was brilliant, a lot smarter than me. But Tyndale took the word from Latin and he simply transliterated it. When you transliterate, you take the word apostolos and you just write apostle. You take the word baptizo and you just, tra- and you just write baptize. It's a transliteration. It's not a translation. Tyndale in 1526, when he came out with his English New Testament, didn't translate the word. He transliterated the word. Now, that's because in English at that time, it was a word that was used. I mean, it wasn't like it was making words up, but that word was simply a throwback to Old Latin. And the Latin word, inspirata, did not mean what the English word means today. We've got to understand that. Inspirata became the word inspiration. If you look up in an old Latin lexicon, and I've got a handful of them on my shelf, pick any one you want, pull it out, throw it on the desk, and look up the word inspiro, you will have this definition, to breathe out, to blow in, or to blow on. If, if the kid wants the, you know, the beach ball blown up, you'd use the word in Latin inspiro. Daddy, inspiro the raft, right? Blow it up, breathe into it. Inspiro. Um, that is what the word means. Unfortunately, if you look in an English dictionary for the word inspiration, here's the definitions you'll get. Definition number one, the stimulation of the mind or the emotions. The stimulation of the mind or the emotions. Or definition number two, a sudden creative act or idea. Poo, I was inspired to clean the garage, which has never happened, by the way. Inspired. The modern idea is this. Guy sitting there, he's inspired. I'm going to paint a painting of a gal kind of smiling. Or I'm going to do some great thing. I'm inspired. That is how most people understand the word because that's what your English dictionary says inspiration means. That is not what Tyndale meant back in the day. And it's certainly not what, what Jerome meant when he translated the Vulgate, which is the Latin translation of the Bible. And it certainly isn't what the Greek word means. Now, what is God breathed or breathed out by God? Let's start by just understanding its usage in the sentence. Number one, it doesn't describe the writer, does it? Which is exactly how most people understand it. Paul was inspired to write the book of Galatians. No, he wasn't. It's not what the passage says. There's nothing in the Bible that says that any of the authors were inspired to do anything. No, the reader is inspired. Okay, that's what it means. This text is inspiring, one would say. It's inspiring. It makes me want to live for God. It's not what the passage says. Notice what the text says. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's the document that this adjective is describing, not the writer and not the reader. Now, a lot of people, and I can go through errors in church history, have focused on inspiration being something that happens to the reader. And a lot of people have thought it's something that happens to the writer. But that's really not what the text is trying to say here. 
Inspiration, God breathed. I've already told you this, right? NIV and the ESV, I just, I guess I want to say this. Most translations, with the exception of a few new, new, new ones that are jumping on the bandwagon, which I'm all for, most will say inspired by God or given by inspiration. NIV, for all of its weaknesses, certainly I give them a, a gold star for, for being one of the few translations, which is like the number three translation in the English world. At least this text says God breathed. And the ESV is about one of the only other ones that will translate it that way. God breathed. What is the word? Theopneustos or theonustos. Theonustos or panustos, neustos is the right way to say it. Uh, God, of course, this is short the sigma, but theos is the word for God. Neustos, to give you this word in other passages, on which, by the way, we're already in our study. We know what, what the word pneuma means, pneumatology. We're studying the study of the spirit. Nuo, Matthew seven twenty five, And the streams rose, this is the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and the winds blew, the winds nuoed, and beat against the house. It didn't stand, and great was its fall. Luke twelve fifty five. He says, you guys talk about knowing the weather. You say the south wind nuos, it blows. And you say there'll, there'll be a scorching heat. John six eighteen. there was a strong wind that was blowing. It was nuoing, and the waters grew rough on the Sea of Galilee. Nuo, to, 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 to blow, to breathe. More like the idea in nuo, at least to blow, blow up the raft, blow up the ball. Now, this is not how we think of it, but to say to blow out, all scripture is blown out by God. Now, notice the parallel here. We'll get to the idea of the spirit now. The picture, as I like to, to, to connect it to, is a man blowing out smoke, right? This is Tolkien, by the way, for all you closet smokers. You have a few Christians, heroes that smoke. He's blowing out this smoke. The idea is, you know, like a, a man blowing out a smoke ring, blowing that out of his mouth. The idea is that the Bible comes out of the mouth of God and the double entendre is the nuoing is the word that we now as a noun, nuo is the verb, noun is the spirit. Talk about the agency of the spirit as the author of the Bible as you've already seen. It's the spirit's book. He wrote it. It's coming through the agency of the spirit as though God himself, like the breath of his mouth creates the world. The Spirit gives life, brings this thing into reality. The Spirit is the, is the agent of this. To breathe it out has that picture of the Spirit being the, the production agent of, of the Bible itself. All Scripture is breathed out, blown out by God. And we can't miss, unfortunately, we do miss it in our language uh, more than we should, the idea of the Spirit being part and parcel of that. All right, more on the process. That's the description. The description is a picture in your mind of the Bible being blown out, breathed out. And that breathing, that blowing is the word for spirit. It's the verb form of it. And the spirit being the one who brings it into to realization, into, into reality. The process now, turn to this passage, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 21 and 25, again gives us the picture of nuo or, or, or numa spirit, in, in this picture. Take a look at it. Great, helpful text which again, in English, we don't see. We don't see it in God breathed, unless you remember, breathed, breath, pneuma, you know, nuo. And here you'll miss it too, because it's translated instead of transliterated, which is good. Can't have it both ways, Mike. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. He said, knowing this first of all, no prophecy of scripture, prophecy, by the way, which is a um, 
transliterated word, but in the Old Testament, it's not. Nabi, it, it means mouthpiece. When we talk about a prophecy, it's something that God spoke out. So it's a different word. It's not the word breath or nuo. Uh, it's the word, you know, something that has been proclaimed by God. No proclamation of Scripture, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. They're not sitting around trying to figure God out. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. I'm going to sit down and write the Bible today. Nobody does that. That's not at least what the Bible authors have done. But men spoke from God. Now, here's the key word. Here's the picture of the process, the description of the process. As they were, these two words, carried along, here's the agency, by the Holy Spirit. Now, you just told me to picture in the writing of the Bible, the breathing out of the Bible from the mouth of God. I get that, but there's an author involved. The author becomes this human agent in the middle of this breathing. And the way it's done is the spirit, the breath of God, if you will, governs that writer to write this down. Now, does he get revelation? Yes, he gets revelation and it's taught, declared, guided by the spirit. And now in his head, God's going to do the rest of the work by guiding him. The spirit's going to do the rest of the work, guiding him to put that down in, in writing, carried along. The key word here is, uh, look at the, the root, pharaoh. Pharaohmenoi. Pharaohmenoi is the participle carried along. Uh, we're used to our participles being ing words, but you get spoke from God as they were carried along. Pharaohmenoi by the Spirit. Now, if you want a picture of this, maybe because this is as, free, is as current as the headlines, picture this. Picture the sailboats. And you need to turn to this one. I want you to look at this. I didn't want to put this on the screen because I want you to mark up your Bibles or highlight your, your electronic Bible. You need to have this jump off the page at you. Same word. Look at the picture carried along. Acts twenty-seven fifteen. This is the shipwreck uh, story. Luke was a part of it, by the way. Verse 15. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and we were, there's our word, driven along. It's the description of what the wind does. It carries things along like the sailboat is carried by the wind. Pharaoh, to be driven along in the passive. It's always in the passive, grammatically. Right? You don't decide to be you know, going with the wind. You are driven. You are taken by the wind. We gave way to it. We couldn't fight it. That's the picture of the wind. That's the word that's employed in Second Peter 1 to describe the process. Running under the lee of the small island called Cauda, uh, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, uh, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run ashore on Sirtis, they lowered their gear and thus they were, here it is again, same word, they were driven along. Same translation, same word. That picture of what the wind does is the picture of what the spirit does to direct the author, the origin. Second Peter 1 says the origin is not the prophet. When Paul wanted to talk about the idea of, of how we should deal with gray areas in Romans 14, the ideas the Bible was claiming is not the prophet's or the apostle's idea. It's not the prophet's interpretation of what he assesses from God or even from God's word in the Old Testament. The picture is that when Scripture is written, as Paul's writings are called Scripture by Peter himself later in the book, the picture, and that's in chapter 3, the end of chapter 3, the picture is that these scriptural writings are God's writings as God decides what's going to end up on Paul's paper. Who or what is the origin? Spirit of God is the origin. God himself, who is the agent, not the prophet, not the prophet's interpretation. The agent is the Spirit of God. 
That's the agency. That's what carries them along. That's what governs and guides and directs the writing. Now you say, wow, it sounds like dictation. It's not dictation. Clearly it's not dictation. Every book of the Bible written by a different author carries a different style and even describes a different history. Paul talks about his history that's different than Peter's history, Luke's history. But look at how this is put in a passage like 1 Thess 2. Last one I think I'll turn you to. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. The difference between God-breathed and dictation is put this way. The, the mystery of it, if you will, is that God's providential guiding of these people when they either spoke as apostles and prophets or wrote as apostles and prophets was God's work utilizing their personalities to get his message across exactly as he intended. Look at how it's put in verse 13 of 1 Thess 2. Great passage, by the way. And we thank God constantly for this. For what? That when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us. Now remember, these Thessalonians were hearing from Paul about Christ and the specifics about Christ, which was not just reiteration of Old Testament prophecy. They were speaking new revelation to these people. You heard it from us, the word of God. You accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is. Even Paul recognized what he was doing. It was the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Now picture the difference there between claiming that you're just a, 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 a dictator, right? Uh, or you're, you're just rather a, a, um, someone who takes dictation from God. It's not the idea, and it's certainly not what Paul describes in the way he interacts with the Thessalonians. But I like to picture it this way. It's like the artist using a hammer or a chisel, right? A sculptor. He uses tools, and though he guides those tools... You could say when you look at the finished product, that's a product that that tool couldn't make on its own. It needs to be driven and carried along. And yet when you look at one piece of equipment, or one piece of art rather, that's built by one tool, one piece of equipment, and another piece of art that was shaft, or crafted by another piece of equipment or another tool, you're going to say it bears different marks. When, when God picks up Isaiah to write, it looks different, the product, than it does when Jeremiah does it. But the product... They are exactly what the Spirit intended because he's the author. He's the ultimate author who takes the revelation of God through the mind and personality of the human author and puts it on paper. Inspiration. The result is this. We read the first six verses in Psalm 19. But let me read the second three, uh, seven, eight, and nine. After talking about creation, speaking and declaring God's mind, it says, now the law of the Lord, it is perfect. You can have some interpretive distinctions on how you view the creation or even your conscience. But the word of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. They rejoice the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It enlightens the eyes. The fear of the Lord, it's clean, enduring forever. And the rules of the Lord are true. And they are righteous altogether. David says that about the writings of the Pentateuch and the prophets that preceded him. The New Testament writers speak that way of David's. New Testament writers speak that way of one another's. And the proof of this, as we don't have time to get into, we did in Bibliology, is that it bears the marks of inspiration because as a whole, it's something that couldn't be created, either collaborated on by 40 people over all that period of time, 14, 1,500 years, not to mention the punctuated presence of predictive prophecy that's hard to get around. Now, you don't need to get all this down, I suppose, on paper, but if you want a good definition of theonoustos, it's the process by which the Spirit records his message. That's why the authors of the scripture can say it is their message. In words, when we talk about the scripture, using chosen human authors, who are those? The apostles and the prophets, utilizing their writing styles. Clearly, Luke reads differently than 1 John, and Peter reads differently than Romans. 
resulting in an exact record, a perfect record, one that's righteous altogether, that God stands back and says, that's exactly what I wanted written, of God's revealing of his thoughts to man. Now, I just add this because the critics are going to say, well, then what's the deal with this conflict between this and that? This is something that is only claimed in the Scripture for the original documents. Now, we've had to take those through time because we don't have the electronic copying process. We've got certain problems that have crept in in the transmission of the text through time. And occasionally, we'll have problems in that transmission with a couple of texts here and there that are usually of no import at all. The biggest ones are the end of the book of Mark, one half of a section of, of John, one half of a, one story, one pericope, one scene in John, and a couple of verses here and there that have been hard for us to decipher based on the transmission problem. But your English translation, we can say, is, I mean, 99% clear, focused depiction of that original document, whether it was Jeremiah's, Moses's, or Peter's. And what we stand back and say is that we have, as David said, as the writer of Hebrews says, the communication of God's mind through the activity of the Spirit. One quick illustration that I like to use that I ripped off from Paul Inns, if you think about God sending his incarnate word, you can compare it to God sending the written word. When Jesus Christ came to earth, he had had a human parent, Mary. But the Bible's clear that the Holy Spirit would be the agency of that birth and that that birth would result in a human being that was without sin that not only wasn't tainted with that kind of sin that would make him guilty before God, but allowed him to live a life as the perfect God-man that was without any record of sin. Writing of the Word is the same way. We have human authors that were imperfect as people, but the Holy Spirit overshadows them, if you will, carries them along. If you want to use the word we use in our definition, superintends or guides them, oversees the process so that they write a book that is without error in the original manuscripts. My, my hope for tonight was to get you to think maybe more clearly about the Spirit being your creator, molding and shaping you, the synapse in your brain, and being the author that wants to speak to you. That picture of the Spirit's work may not seem all that mystical because you're involved in the tactile reality of your own life and you look around at the world that you can touch and taste and smell. But the Spirit of God that seems so mysterious in our mind was the architect, the builder of all those things. And as the creator of who you are, he not only wants to speak to you as you ponder what he's made, but he's written a book, and he expects you every day to get into that book. It's not a feeling. It's not a mystery. It's nothing esoteric. It can seem as mundane as you cracking your Bible open tomorrow morning with a cup of coffee and hearing the mind of God through the authorial work of, of the Spirit of God. So let us stand in awe of our... God, our triune God, the Spirit in particular as creator and author. Let's pray. God, thanks for this team sticking with us and this semester wanting to uh, dig deeper into the person of the Spirit. We thank you tonight for the way that we've had a chance to think through, albeit for a short period of time, just we only have an hour or so to get together to do this, but begin at least to get our minds thinking and rolling in the direction of understanding what it means that you're our intelligent, wise, genius creator that creates us and creates the world that we live in and was actively involved in that on a level that should, uh, should really impress us and motivate us. And then you spoke to us, not only through the things that you made as we contemplate them, but you put a book together. We're so grateful that we have it. We understand the language in which it's written. We're, we're people that uh, can read a language with, with a carefully translated English text, and we're literate people that I trust as you work in our lives, as we'll read in the future and study in the future, you will help us to understand those spiritual thoughts taught 
to us through the pens of the apostles and prophets. God, make us more enthusiastic about that. I know there's lots of things vying for our time. We've got lots of responsibilities, but don't let our Bibles sit on the shelf. Let us get motivated to pick them up, spend time in them, to ingest the word you said in Psalm 1. It's the only real key to us knowing you and thus prospering as people that connect with you on that relational level as we learn your word and we meditate on it day and night. Let that be the reality for us, God. And may we recognize as I began in prayer tonight just what it means to fulfill our purpose as human beings to know who you are. Thanks tonight for anything that might have helped us move in that direction of knowing you better. Thanks so much for all you do for us and all you provide for us. In Jesus' name, amen.